All right, turn your Bibles in 1 John chapter 2, and we are looking at part 2 in this subject of Christ as our advocate. We're just going to read verse 1. There's some things in verse 2 that we'll deal with. We might get to it today, but we're going to deal with verse 2, which is kind of controversial. 1 John 2, 1. I'm not going to get down today, so there's at least a third part coming. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. So last week we started looking at the subject of Christ as our advocate. And we're to advocate, I guess in a simplified form, we could say as our, our legal representative, our personal lawyer. Christ is our lawyer. You know, I've talked with people over the years that have had their own lawyer, have gotten in trouble, and you hear them make threats. Don't make me call my lawyer. You know, you've heard people that say that, that have a lawyer retained for different issues. I've never had the money to be able to do that. I know there's a, there's different clubs you can join into where you pay a little bit every month and you can have access to a lawyer. Prepaid legal, yeah. But there's the idea there. If, if you have access to a lawyer, having that knowledge, that, that security, it's a little bit of um, assurance there and some power of knowing you, you have somebody you know that can help you in time of need in this, these legal battles. That's the case here with, with Christ. He is our lawyer. And if, like the text said, if we sin, which is all the time, we're sinners every day. So it's when we sin, actually. We have this lawyer retained for us all the time. And he's many things connected to him being a lawyer and advocate. And we're going to mention those again today. We did see the, the far-reaching implications of the variety of aspects involved in this wide spectrum of salvation. Salvation reaches from before time, comes through time, and goes past time into eternity future and started seeing some of the aspects of him being an advocate all the way through. We had also mentioned the truth of salvation starts before the beginning of time in the covenant. We looked at Romans 8, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And we talked about this, how that all this sort of a fourfold application of here you have the covenant before time, here you have Christ next coming and acting out what the covenant said to do. Then we have the gospel recorded that matches what Christ acted out, that matches what the covenant said. And then when that gospel's preached out, it's preached out in a way that the person that believes it matches all those things. There's no changes all the way through there. They're all the same, all harmonious, no contradictions, nothing drops off on the way. Just like, for example, in a, uh, Romans 8, where you have all those whom God foreknew, he predestinated. So there was nobody dropping off to the next category. All whom he predestinated, he called. Nobody dropped off, and so on and so forth. It carries these people all the way through. So the same with the, the work of Christ in its truth. It's truth as it was decreed and purposed. It's truth as it was performed. 
It's truth as it was recorded. It's truth as it is believed. And that is the whole ministry, as we had seen a couple weeks back, is based on that gospel that we have fellowship in is not only the power unto salvation, but it's it's what we feed on and grow in all the days of our life. We mentioned also the, the strength that this truth of advocacy adds to our faith and the assurance that comes out of that. You'll see as it goes on, it just keeps building just like one more thing you can put on the stack of, look at that, this is like bulletproof as these truths stack up and fit together like puzzle pieces. We talked about in the covenant how that the covenant of grace before time, before the foundation of the world, had that the Father and Son agreed in this purpose and decree and plan and, and this will to be carried out by Christ being the one. And the Father appointed him to be all these things to his people, to fulfill the duties of the work that he had to do. And all this is connected to him being an advocate. We saw that he is surety, which means he's the guarantee, like one would be for a cosigner, for one. If one defaulted on a loan, the surety pays the price. He's a mediator, which means he's a go-between, between the Father and his people. The people can't approach the Father without Christ. God, the Father, can't approach the people without Christ. He is their representative. He's their legal representative. He is their substitute he is actually, when it comes to the wrath and punishment, they come out, he goes in, he takes their place. He is their high priest. And this is connected to him being advocate too. He is the one that, in reference to spiritual fellowship and worship and holy spiritual communion, Christ is the one that is in there in the middle working all these things out. And then in the end, he is priest also in that he continues to Pray for his people continually. So you've heard the phrase, and you might have used it yourself if you've had a job or you've had to do more than one thing. The phrase is, yeah, I wear a bunch of different hats. You've heard that phrase before. A job might start out where, you know, the very first week or two or three, you're being trained to do things you've never done before. And then as you grow in that job, you take on responsibility, and then you start training others. And then it starts branching out. If you're not afraid to take on responsibility, you become the go-to guy. And whenever you see things starting to fall through the cracks, you pick it up. And all of a sudden, you become valuable enough to, if these people would get rid of you, they would be foolish to do so. And you become the person that wears a bunch of hats. In other words, You might have a job title that says one thing. But you might do other things that apply to so many other job titles. And that's the way it is with Christ. The government of salvation, the authority, the control, the, the, the fulfilling of all of salvation, the government of all that is on his shoulders. He is preeminently responsible for his people in salvation. We looked at the whole work of Christ from the start, and we saw this idea that there's going to be a legal and we can say financial, which, which is redemptive. There's a payment involved. Legal and redemptive demands that the Father demands that Christ must take care of in order to save his people. We'll see further the responsibility taken by our advocate afterwards, after the work was done, 
how that he guards and protects his people. And that's where we are. That's that's where we experience this and see the truth of it and reap the benefits of it in real time. When he protects his people, he guards his people from any further or future demands that the law would have on them. That's what a lawyer does. He's the sacrifice. He's the redeemer. He is the propitiation or satisfaction to God. He's the surety or in other words, the guarantee. So all these things connected and interwoven just guarantee the assurance of God's people and their salvation. And we look to him for taking care of all this and for our assurance. So it goes further into this, how that he is. He is our spokesman. He is the word, so he's the communicator. He's our spokesman and continued representative as our lawyer and legal counsel, uh, intervening with what? His own merit, the whole merit that he had, his blood and righteousness all the way through salvation. And we probably won't get this today, but in the end we're going to be, we're going to find out that he is even the judge. So here he is, born of the law, he's a law keeper. Fulfilled the law, satisfied the law, paid the penalty of the law. We're justified through his blood. We're brought into the state where we're not only forgiven, but we're made righteous. And we're put in the state where we can't be charged anymore. Come to find out we're not under the law. He's the judge, and he's tight with the one that appointed him all these things. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody. All the way through... This thing, there's no holes in it. There's no contradictions. It all is harmonious. And it's going to be okay because Christ is the perfect advocate. So last week we did the covenant. And we're going to move this week into the person and work of Christ uh, in time. How that he came and did these things. Of course, this is what we talk about all the time. But when we talk about this, tie it to the fact that he did this as an advocate. Or he had to do this so that he could work out his office of advocacy. And and think about the law, too, as we go through here. First of all, Christ was sinless. We know that he came into the world and he was sinless, both God and man. As man, he came through the birth of a woman in, in the way of being born from a virgin so that he could bypass the original sin of Adam that we all partook of. So he bypasses that by being born of this virgin through the seed of God put in the virgin. So the seed of man did not come into play here. So he was sinless humanity, sinless flesh. And also at the same time, he was God in the flesh. We've been studying in the book of John. The word, which is Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what's called the incarnation. How that God took on flesh, and we know we just explained it's sinless flesh, through this virgin birth. And he was born under the law. We're going to look at some texts real quick. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you're taking notes, at least take notes. Galatians 4, 4 is under the next point. He was born under the law. Now, in the covenant, there had to be things done in the salvation that were precise. There had to be things done that were required of Christ to do, certain conditions that had to be fulfilled by him so that we didn't have to. And one of the conditions was 
he was born under the law. And, and so were we. We're born under the law, condemned. And then as we attempt to keep that law, it just becomes worse. We just condemn ourselves all as heap up condemnation. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them. The word redeem meaning to buy, to purchase. And that, of course, is with his merit, with his blood. To redeem them that were under the law. Talking about his people. That we might receive the adoption of sons. So to be adopted in the end. To be his son, we must be taken out of the other family, the other category of we used to be of our father, the devil. We had to be taken out of that family by a payment. And that payment, by the way, was not paid to Satan. It was paid to the father. There's a heresy out there that said that the devil had to be paid. The devil has no right to take any money. The offense is against the father. The father is the one that needs to be satisfied, not the devil. So to be born under the law as the God-man, we know that as he was raised up and he was able to eventually read and study, we know as a man, as a sinless man, we find in Jerusalem he was in the temple when Joseph and Mary went to pay, I believe it was to pay their taxes. He kind of got away from them and they lost track of him. They found him in the temple at 12 years old in the temple teaching people about what the word of God says. The scrolls were rolled out and he's in there instructing these old men with long beards about what the law said. And they were, of course, were amazed at his knowledge at age 12. And you can imagine by at his public ministry at age 30, what he was able to do in teaching the law, what he knew about the law. I mean, he's God in the flesh. He didn't have the, the brain issues that we had, too, from the fall of Adam. So he was knowledgeable about the law. He kept the law. He was concise. He was, able to, he was able to reason and debate. He could never be trapped in any arguments because he knew the law through and through. Thirdly, he kept the law. He was a law keeper. He was brought forth out in the desert, and God allowed Satan to tempt him. He resisted that temptation. He was impeccable. You ask the question, could Christ have sinned? Uh, that question is asked all the time. The answer is no. He could not have because of his nature. There was nothing in his sinless humanity that would allow him to fall into sin. And of course, there's nothing in his being God, having those two natures in one person, that he could have never possibly have sinned in the first place. And they call that impeccable. He couldn't sin. He didn't have the ability to. If there's something that God can't do, people say that God can do anything. He can't sin. He's impeccable. So Christ was impeccable. Hebrews 4. Let's look at a, a few verses there that kind of deal with this. In verse 14, Hebrews 4:14. 4, since then we have a great high priest, Christ, who passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. Let's hold fast about what we say about the gospel. Because here we're going to give just more evidence 
of the assurance that we have in this high priest. We don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with feelings of our infirmities. But here's the kind we have. But was in all points tempted just as we are, yet without sin. So Christ went through this practical experience, the same type that we go through every day, but yet he was able, because of who he was, to resist these temptations. He could not have entered into the temptation and failed. Therefore, uh, verse 16, because of that, what do we do? Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When is the time of need? 24-7. We can go to the Father through Christ to the throne of grace because he is sinless. So he can deal with the Father instead of us. He can be the mediator, the go-between to the Father. He's our advocate, in other words. Fourthly, there had to be a payment made. There was a demand a legal demand, a financial, so to speak, demand that we owed to the Father. The wages of sin is death. And that's got far more reaching implications than just physical death. There is legal condemnation. We come into the world legally condemned by our first father, Adam. And we owe a debt to God's law and justice from the get-go there. Then we're under the law. So we are born and we start taking that law and sinning with it. And we're under that curse, as we're going to read here a little bit later about that curse of the law. So there's a demand to release us, to again, to get us out of that family, to get us out of the condemned state to the justified state. There are demands that have to be met by this advocate. Go to Matthew 5. Again, these demands are both legal and financial, or, or in other words, legal and redemptive. There must be a price paid. There's got to be a price paid. I think I used this word last week, term, but I think the word mercantile, which has to do with merchandise, which is tied to a, the counting language, which is tied to imputation. Some people say, well, you, you guys are just making this whole thing just, you know, merely legal and financial, like God's an accountant. <laughs> God is an accountant. He counts things. He marks things. What is the verse that says, uh, if God should mark iniquities, who shall stand? In other words, if God's keeping track in his books, they might say, well, you make God a bookkeeper. He is. <laughs> he keeps books. And there are certain things on people's accounts that have to be taken care of. And this is what Christ came to do with his people's account. He set it straight. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to do, this is not going to be done in a crooked way. This is going to be done in a way of righteousness and justice. We're not cheating here. He says, I got this. I'll take care of this. You stay out of it because you're not qualified. But I'm going to do this in a right way. And my father's not going to say, hey, 
uh, I, I got an idea. Since I'm, we're powerful and we can do all these secret things and do things in the invisible, we can just make it look like we did something. We'll sweep it under the carpet and we'll just tell everybody we did it and they'll, they'll believe us. We can make them believe us. Now, he did this in a just way and he suffered as the son of God to do this. The father did not let him slide. And when Christ signed up for it, he knew that he couldn't be let go. Verse 18, for truly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. He came to fulfill the law. Go to Romans 2, verse 13. This idea here of Christ making sure that he honors the law, fulfills the law, magnifies the law, is a vital part of the gospel. So that God could be both a just God and a savior when he declares his people righteous. He does it in a just way. It's a way of justice. And he does it, in other words, he doesn't cheat, as we said. He's faithful to himself. Romans 2.13 For not the hearers of the law are justified before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Do we know anybody that did this? Throughout scripture, you see language that talks about so-and-so was a righteous man. He kept all his statutes before man, and he walked in all the ways of, of God all the days of his life. You see language like that in several different people, in the, like in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that they fulfilled the law perfectly. That just means by the standards of, of society, everybody looked at those people and said, that dude, is he's a righteous man. Outwardly, like Paul, blameless, right? But we know that everybody and whoever in the Old Testament that's mentioned in this way, that is just and that kept God's statutes and his sayings, or even if it's mentioned specifically the law, we don't read that to say those people, those few, those few exceptions were justified by the law. No, it can't mean that. It can't mean that. We know that to be justified by the law, you would have to keep the whole law all the time, nonstop, from start to finish. We know that we are coming into the world already with Adam's sin on us. So nobody can do that. So Christ, as qualified under the law, is careful to legally handle the law in a precise, exact, measured out way to fulfill it and to satisfy it. All those that the Father justifies are able to be released from that law because Christ did something correct and precise with the law. Then the Father is able, he's allowed to do it in such a way that it's straight, it's truthful. It's just, it honors his character. So as the entanglements of guilt and debt are there, Christ does this law in such a way that he's able to release people from those obligations as he took on the obligation himself to get them out of these entanglements. So again, there's a multiplicity of responsibilities that Christ takes on as we look at this advocacy subject. He's not only qualified because he's sinless, he stays sinless in his life. 
He not only does that, he fulfills the law and pays, not only fulfills it, but he, in the end, mounts that cross and pays the full penalty of that broken law. So anything to do with the law, he took care of the whole thing. He's in it, he's under it, he does it, and he pays for those that broke it. This action is to the point where the law cannot condemn his people. The law cannot, after this is done, cannot be used against his people. So this is part of the action of the advocate. Not only that, but the law is worked out in such a way by Christ that the law, in the end, will demand their justification. The same law that condemns God's people now is used... God looks to them and says, not only not guilty, but fully righteous according to the law. That is the measure. Perfect righteousness of Christ as the law is fulfilled and magnified and satisfied. So in other words, if there's any accusations toward God's people using the law, and God just doesn't say not guilty, God says righteous according to the law according to the law being fulfilled. So the results in putting them in this legal status after all this has taken place, it is them not even being able to be charged anymore by the law from any sin past, present, and future. This is called, in other words, nobody can lay any charge to them under the law, not man, not Satan, and not even God himself. This is called the non-imputation of sin. Sin cannot be imputed or charged to their account. God can't even do it. There's at least two things God can't do. He can't sin. And after he has had Christ satisfy law and justice for a person, God cannot charge that person with sin. And he said he will not. And uh, that's part of the promise of the God that can't lie, who promised eternal life before time began to Christ concerning these people. So sin is removed completely to clean your slate. You've heard that idea. This guy's got a clean slate. You talk about a, a criminal that has got his record expunged maybe, or some guy gets pulled over and they, they run all of his legal stuff and nothing, nothing on his account. You could say that he's got a clean slate. Well, not only do God's people have a clean slate because sin is, is removed, but they have a full slate in the positive of righteousness imputed. So when we talk about justification, we, we ought not stop short of just saying justification means they're forgiven. No, further, justification means they're righteous. And, you know, the idea of, of innocence, sometimes we talk about, some people might throw that in when they define justification, how they, there's no sin or they're innocent. Well, I mean, we're in a better state than, than angels are. Adam was innocent. And now, after we have sinned in Adam and sinned in our own persons, and now are justified, we're in a better state than Adam ever thought of being. We're righteous. We're perfectly righteous in an impeccable state. Now, Adam was peccable. He fell. As far as people want to argue about whether he was saved later, you know, I don't care. I'm just using this point to say, like in the New Covenant, everything's better. We're in an unchangeable state of perfect righteousness because of Christ's work for his people. So this is both legal and it is has to do with the payment. 
So we, again, we, we're dipping into this idea of financial redemptive. It's a matter of, again, accounting. It's involved with accurate measurements in the exchange here of justice in reference to a merit and reward that was earned by Christ. And this is grace, how that it is given to us. The bad parts are removed, the good parts given. And we're in a state now where we are sons and we have entitlements now. Sometimes people talk about entitlements as something bad. Well, if you make it uh, obligatory, you know, where God's obligated, you're entitled to, like the free willer talks. We understand that as being bad language. But after God brings us in, sets us on this foundation, and we are now a child of God, children of God now have special things given to them that are entitlements because of the work of another not because of anything that they have done themselves. And these entitlements are bought and paid for. That's why they're just. They're bought and paid for by Christ. And that's why, as God's people, we should get this idea out of our mind of pride and receive freely all these entitlements by grace and say, and just like bask in these entitlements and say, these are ours. I don't have to work for them. So we should utilize all these things. All these spiritual blessings in Christ are freely given. So we should freely take them and be thankful for them. That's, that's the freedom of worship right there. That's passing from death unto life. Now we have the freedom to see and live and learn, walk by faith and love him and serve him because everything is bought and paid for. We, we owe him everything, but we're not paying him back by what we do to try to chip away making payments for those entitlements. They're paid for. Don't mess with that payment. He took care of it. So we know this is because of the truth of the gospel that shows that the advocate did all the work to merit the results that are eventually applied to us throughout our whole life of faith. Galatians 3, let's go there. We've seen this many times. It's talking about the curse of the law. Look at four verses here. And we're getting to the demands of this payment that we owe, this debt that we owe. And we cannot be released until this debt is released from us. Verse 10. For as many are under the works of the law, or under the law, these are under a curse. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. So everybody's born under a curse. They're born under the law. And we're cursed because we don't continue in all the things of the law, the whole law, continually, all the time. First of all, we started out wrong. So just, you got to get out of there right away. You're done. You're under a curse. And right away, a need of getting out of that curse from an outside source. This is where Christ comes in. Verse 11, but no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. You know, maybe in the sight of man, a, a guy can look at you or a girl can look at you and say, that person is, if anybody's getting to heaven, it's that person. That person should be a 13th apostle. That's what Spurgeon said about Wesley, because he was judging by the law. We can't judge by the law. If we judge by the law, we condemn the person we're judging and ourselves. It's a cursed system of judgment. It's the administration of death, as we learned, as we contrasted the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. 
So in the sight of God, who cares about the sight of man? Man is a liar. He's deceived. And he'll embellish things to make himself look better and make his friends look better. He's biased. Man is biased because he's blind. No one is justified by the law on the side of God. It's clear because the just or the justified, those who have been made righteous, shall live by faith. But the, and it says this, but the law is not of faith. How much clearer can you get? The law is not of faith. If the just shall live by faith, that means they don't mess with this law for being accepted before God. The man who does these things shall live by them. What did we say earlier? It's not those that hear the law, but that do the law. So if you're to be justified by the law, you live the law. And nobody can do that. From the get-go, right out of the gate, they're condemned by the law because of who they are and then because of what they have done. It's an impossibility. That's why he says it's clear. He says it's evident the just shall live by faith, not the law, because they can't. Verse 13, here's the payment part. The father demands a payment to switch families, to get out of bondage, to become sons, adopted sons. And here's the work required. Christ redeemed, the word means to buy out of the slave market redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us. This lines up with 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He who was not under the curse was put under the curse so that we could be released from the curse in him. See the in the two passages that agree with each other. It goes on to say, because it is written in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone having been hanged on a tree. You know why? Because they're criminals. Christ was made to be a criminal by the decree and by imputing the crimes of God's people to him. And he took on the curse in that way. And he legally became then, as he took on that responsibility, the father looked at him, the one who was who was perfect, sinless, impeccable, who kept the law. He looked at him, and this deal had been made where he would take on this sin legally. And, he, and when he took it on, this transferring of the sin of God's people to him was so real and so effectual that God said, you're guilty. This one that was sinless, he said, legally, you are guilty because these sins were transferred to you. You're bearing the sins of these people in such a way, in a reality that now you've obligated for me to punish you for these sins so that the sins can be taken away. You're guilty. There's no turning back. Those sins were on him. And until he got those off, he wasn't safe. So there was no mercy showed. It's not like, oh, well, you're my son. We had fellowship from eternity face to face. In the beginning was God. Word was with God. And there was fellowship with God. And he didn't say at that point in time, you know what? I mean, we're, we got into this thing a little too far. You know, I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm going to let it slide. Again, he could like sprinkle woofle dust on people's eyes. And just like in a movie, when a movie stops 
and there's people talking about what's going on, and, and you can get in and change the characters in the movie. And when the movie starts back up, nobody knows what happened. God didn't do that. He didn't do that. This is the eternal Son of God who was sinless, who didn't even have to step off his throne. And here he is coming down under the law, born of the law, dwelling among idiots like us. And here he had people spitting on him, stripping him, making fun of him, and he, he fulfilled this promise, this condition of taking on that law and taking the wrath of God that was owed to us. He took on that wrath and he satisfied it. He was the propitiation in, in reference to this so he could be our advocate for us so that he could stand in. Every time the law was accusing us, he could say, no, I already took care of that. Remember what I did on the cross as I became the curse and became sin by imputation? Remember that? He's always pointing back to that time and place that he took care of that by his death. So that's that's the ground and the basis by which the gospel has value because it's that's the currency right there that it's backed up. It's not like money that's paper. It's not backed up by gold. You can just, let's pretend this is worth a dollar. No, he, if you measure it on the scales of justice, it comes out the equity. Yep, it equals a dollar. It's backed by blood. So now you can legally say, we're not pretending. We can legally say there's worth and value eternally because of what he has done with the law for his people. So he bought us with his blood. Go to First uh, Peter 1. Some more of this language. We're going to have to stop here in a minute. We're getting uh, pretty far along in time. First Peter 1 and verse 18. Again, thinking that there's there's the financial part here, the debt that's owed for redemption. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. And he gives examples. Silver or gold, he says, is corruptible. Those things will corrupt. There, you know, I'd like to have a basement full of silver and gold. I wouldn't have to work. You know, I could use that to pay things off. But in the end... That's, if you've ever seen any precious metal, it'll tarnish. Things can go on in the market. The value can drop or raise or whatever. But this commodity, this Christ's blood, it, it never changes. The value or, or the merit of it, the merit of his work, in other words. When we say blood, we're not, again, we're not talking about a bowl of plasma and hemoglobin that is presented. Here, God, here's some blood. It is what that merit of his death was worth. That's that phrase, blood and righteousness. That's what we mean by it, the merit of his work. So that's the purchase price here. Not silver or gold. That's not worth anything, especially in salvation. You can't buy salvation. We've seen people try to do that. Some people still, as they throw their $100 bill in the plate so that everybody can see them every week. I paid my money this week. You can't buy salvation. There's not enough money in the world to buy salvation. So it says you can't can't be redeemed by silver or gold. We know the history of the Catholic Church where you could pay indulgences and get yourself out of purgatory. That didn't work. That was made up. Verse 19, what is the answer? What is the currency? What is the payment that's acceptable to the Father? 
but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Indeed, having been foreknown before the foundation of the world, but revealed in these last times for you. That's through the gospel. Those believing in God through him, he who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope, hope meaning what? Confident expectation. So that your faith and confident expectation might be in God. God is the one that decreed all this, that planned this out. He's the one wise enough to appoint Christ to fulfill this. Christ is the one that was good enough and perfect enough to fulfill all these things without fail. And the merit of that work is what redeems his people. And is there any question after knowing all that? Is there any question that the father would look at that purchase price and say it's not enough? That'd be ridiculous. That's what false religion is built on. False religion is built on looking at the blood of Christ and saying it's not enough. Really. That's the foundation of all false religion. Under at least the umbrella of so-called Christianity. Saying the blood of Christ is not enough. Let's go to one more. Go to Isaiah 53. And we'll quit after this. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Verse 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is talking about it pleased God the Father to bruise Christ. This is in reference to when he was on the cross. He was on the cross. Sins were transferred to Christ's account. As we had just mentioned earlier, Christ became legally obligated. He was surety, substitute, representative, mediator, advocate, high priest. All these things had to happen because he was appointed to do this. He volunteered to do it. And all time was brought down to this one moment. The world was created for this point in time right here that happened. The most important event in the world ever, that ever will be, ever has been, right there on that cross. And it pleased the Father to exercising his wrath against that sin that was imputed to Christ. Christ became this sacrifice that would release all these things from the Father. So there was satisfaction in that that took place. Where in times past, all these other sacrifices in the Old Testament, millions of gallons of blood on the Old Testament altars were spilled by these priests and all these people every day watching this happen. And the scripture says in Hebrews that it never took away sin. All right, new sacrifice. Go through it. All these little details, all the sin going on, didn't take away sin. Next day, new sacrifice. For thousands of years, God is never satisfied there. And then, all of a sudden, this happens with Christ. And within a span of, of three hours, it is finished. Christ died. Father says, I'm satisfied. That didn't take long, did it? <laughs> but it's the person involved, and it was the fulfillment of all that plan and purpose perfectly done to satisfy the Father. That's what it says here. It was a satisfaction. Please the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. When he shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
the father and the son saw this as something that was going to be successful. They knew before it happened that it would be successful. They knew that it would work. They knew it would be effective, effectual, victorious, or successful. All these things synonymously going in the direction of they can't fail. This thing's going to work because of who's involved here. It's going to result in all the benefits. There's going to be eternal security in these people that it was for. Verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Not like one who would bring a baby to full term and hear this mom is having this baby and at the last minute. All the travail of going through labor, sweating, screaming, and deliver a stillborn baby. There's no satisfaction there. But here, Christ, having gone through the planning of this, coming down and having to deal with people for 33 years, being spat on, being made fun of, being argued with, and then being stripped naked and the wrath of God poured out on him for the space of three hours, him dying, said it's finished, it works. It's satisfying sacrifice. God was satisfied. And it says in the middle of verse 11, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, because he shall bear their iniquities. We know that Christ as the God-man had the same essence of attributes as the Father, all-knowing. The Father, in his wisdom, appointing Christ to do this, Christ being the one to do this work, knew he would succeed in it. And then Christ performing the work perfectly without fail, getting nothing wrong, magnifying the law, satisfying the law. We see he did this through knowledge. He knew what he was doing every step of the way, and he did it perfectly. And he, in his own person, stayed sinless by taking on the sins of our persons and ridding them completely from us and from himself after he satisfied them. For God to pronounce, I'm accepting this sacrifice, and then raising Christ up as a sign showing that he accepted the sacrifice. Because if Christ messed up in the sacrifice, he'd be in the grave. Just like the high priest. If the high priest in the Old Covenant did something wrong on the on the sacrifice, from what I understand, historically, sometimes they, uh, a lot of times they would tie a rope. They would put bells on the garments of the bottoms of the priest, and as they're in there doing their thing, sprinkling their blood, they did something wrong. Maybe they put, say they put pig's blood on the altar or something. Or an unqualified priest would get in there that's not from a certain tribe. Just did something wrong and script the sacrifice. Or, or had strange fire on the altar as it's spoken in the Old Testament. God would kill that one and they would pull that from behind the curtain. They would pull this dude out and he's dead. God killed him. He did it wrong. Well, Christ had the knowledge not to, not to mess this thing up. He was a qualified one to do it. He did it right. He satisfied the Father. The Father signified by raising him up. Not only raising him up, he ascended up and he's exalted on the right hand of the Father in the highest place that he can ever be, anyone can ever be, now and forever. It was a success because of how he bore their iniquities. Verse 12, last verse, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoils with the strong because, in other words, he, he earned this. 
He poured out his soul unto death. There's this humility part where he was numbered with the transgressors. As we read in Philippians 2, how that he lowered himself, took on flesh for the reason of, of taking on sin and having to die the death of the cross. Remember, as a result of that, it said that God had lifted him up in a position so that in the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Read that in Philippians 2. And that's what this same thing is saying here. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's because their transgression was imputed to them. He became what we were legally. And he bare the sin of many. That's the elect. And what did he do and still now does? He did this, remember, right before he died in John 17. He made intercession for his people, but yet he still does. He lives now to pray for his people right now at the right hand of the Father. As an advocate, he's praying for them. All right, we'll stop there. I didn't get very far at all, and that's fine. I got far in talking about a lot of these truths, but I'm just referring to in my notes. I didn't get very far. Any questions or comments before we go? All right, you'll be dismissed.